our eyes to do so much, but are they working to their full potential? Are our students' eyes working to their full potential? There is so much about the eyes that until I met today's guest, I had no clue about. Welcome to the Everything EC podcast. I am your host, Carla Ward, and joining me today is Dr. Fabian Tai. Dr. Tai is the owner of Dr. Fabian Tai and Associates in Mississauga, Ontario. He is an optometrist and vision therapist taking eye health care to the next level. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Tai. Thank you, Carla, for having me. Before we get started, why don't we talk a little bit about how you got into the field of not just optometry, but how you discovered vision therapy? All right. So where does it begin? Um, so I started practice um, as a regular optometrist, your typical optometrist that everyone who's been to an eye doctor typically sees. I check people's glasses. I check to make sure your eyes are healthy. I also just make sure that everything's functioning well. Um, you know, years of practice go by, you know, I always have kind of interesting cases where sometimes you have some child coming through typically, or even an adult where they say, I swear there's something wrong. You know, I remember seeing a child saying, I, you know, I swear my mommy's head expands and, and contracts. It kind of gets bigger and, clo- and, and smaller. And I'm like, what? I, I kind of don't understand that. And then sometimes you pick up on kids kind of reading like the eye chart backwards and you're going, oh, that's kind of funny. You know, usually we'd read it from left to right, but they were reading it from right to left, or they would kind of have, you know, eventual consistencies without me understanding. They would kind of say an A is a V, you know, a three was a five, you know, a, a, well, not really B's and D's because they're all capitalized, but they would kind of say things backwards. I would kind of say, you know, over time, I'd be like, these are really quirky things. And, you know, this is me be, uh, before becoming a parent that I just thought that people were making it up. Kids were just looking for attention. You know, they were making up things or looking for glasses. Like these are the typical typical comments I come across all the time is that, you know, they see 2020, they can see the smallest size print, but you know, they keep on coming to see me and they're going, oh my God, like there's something wrong. But I keep on saying there's nothing wrong, you know, and fast forward about eight to 10 years into practice. This is me becoming, you know, a first time parent, a dad, and all of a sudden, like, you know, I remember my, my daughter was about one or two and I'm like, wow, you know, just observing her, just watching through her developmental milestones and thinking kids are really, really curious and they really love to learn and they really love to explore and they love to kind of just watch you and copy you and do whatsoever. And then luckily, um, a friend of mine introduced me and if anything, I I was, I was, my wife thinks it's an excuse for me just to kind of hang out with my friends. Uh, we went to a course uh, and it was about vision therapy and it kind of blew my mind. Uh, it blew my mind because in school, so I went to uh, University of Waterloo School of Optometry. Uh, a lot of the things that they were teaching, they did not even teach at this course. And I was one of those students in the course that just kind of like raised my hands and going, I don't get it. Um, this is contradictory to what I'm learning. Where did you get this information from? Thinking that they were going to, they were like teaching me something that, you know, the flat, the earth is flat type of scenario where I'm like, this is impossible. I've, this is not what I've learned. So, you know, fast forward, like, you know, after the course, you know, I take back the information and I start to kind of look through my exam files and start to see some patients over again and start to apply sort of the knowledge from the course. And yet and behold, it was all true. And that was sort of my entry into vision therapy was it was by chance, I would literally say, um, just because, you know, it 
gave me a really big headache. And, you know, most of the times I actually did not want to believe that whatever I'd been doing for the past eight to 10 years. And really, I think it was the biggest guilt factor of, you know, what if all these patients, you know, were reporting things were true. And I was just dismissing them and I couldn't believe it. But I guess for me, the lesson was, you know, maybe I needed to take the experience and that's where my passion is drawn from that I realized that, oh my God, like 25% of my patients, like one in four, I would say people that come through my office actually have a vision problem. And these are patients that don't even realize that there is an issue and they just kind of deal with it and just kind of stress out about it. So a long winded story, I came across vision therapy very suddenly and very, uh, I would say, um, what's the word I'm looking for? By Reluctantly. <laughs> uh, and reluctantly, I'm very skeptical. So everything that I do, I kind of, you know, I would say proceed with caution. But once I really see the benefits, I kind of go straight in and blazing right ahead, because if I know it's going to help someone, I go right through it. So that's how I eventually got into vision therapy. And soon after I've taken, I don't know, hundreds of hours of courses, I think I literally travel each and every other month uh, to take a course. I've, um, I take like easily over 100 hours in a year uh, for courses, maybe up to 200 in some cases. Uh, just because I love to learn and there's so much to learn about someone's brain, which is really what vision's all about is someone's brain and how it functions. Well, and that was going to be my next question is what is the difference between, if there is a difference between eyesight and vision? Um, eyesight is just about how you see like on a chart, like do you see 2020? So eyesight is really the measurement of, do you see the smallest print? You know, versus vision is about what do you see? Does it give you meaning? You know, is it, you know, Chinese? Is it English? Is it French? Is it, you know, Sanskrit? It's like, you know, what is that letter or is it just a squiggle? Mm -hmm. And then does the squiggle have meaning, especially when you talk about, you know, certain languages where they have like, you know, intonations and squiggles and they actually have meaning behind them. So vision kind of brings together everything that you're seeing mm -hmm. and it kind of gives, yeah, meaning is pretty much the best word I would kind of, you know, say this, what, what is vision? It tells you about how things appear around you. So vision is just more than reading. So when I talk about vision, I want people to understand that vision is about how you walk, how you write, um, how you even look and engage in someone. Like, are you able to look at someone's eyes? You know, mm -hmm. and are you able to converse with them, like looking at them and also not having to kind of, you know, kind of look around all the time just because you're so worried about what's around you because you actually can't see the space around you. Oh, fascinating. Of course, because and that makes sense. Like I think about some students who when they're reading, they have to turn their head to look at the paper because they can actually see the words on the page better out of the corner of their eye than if they're looking directly at the paper. That's right. So when kids turn their heads, you know, over to the right or to the left, they're actually getting rid of what's called binocularity or their eye teaming. So basically that when they turn their head, they're looking with one eye and then the other eye that's kind of turned away they actually can't see the paper because your nose is blocking them. It's acting as what we call a septum. So it's actually, you know, you're only becoming one eye. And the reason why is that sometimes when you use two eyes, that's actually much more of a complicated process. It's sort of like how I kind of tell people, it's like sort of like when you're dancing, 
you can kind of dance and bop on your chair. But then also <laughs> when you get up on the dance floor and you actually have to kind of really move all four limbs and kind of move your body to the rhythm, that's a lot harder. Right. And if you kind of think about your eyes, it's something similar to that is that it's easy for me to use one eye. That's why some kids will actually just close or cover their one eye or they'll just kind of lean over and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm tired, but you know, conveniently close the one eye along with it. But what they've kind of figured out is that, hey, when I use one eye, everything is a lot easier and I can actually get through this homework or get through this passage. All right. We talked about it a little bit, but what happens? What are the long-term problems that can take place if we, you know, allow children to continue using those coping mechanisms, right? They've learned to, you know, close an eye and only play with one eye or read with one eye. I mean, obviously they're not using their eyes to their full potential. So what are some of the long-term effects that can happen if they continue those basically bad habits? A great question. So it's, um, the long-term effects is they'll develop compensations mm. and usually the compensations are poor compensations. You know, there, there are usually things that would take someone a lot longer or the child becomes very rigid that they can only do things a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, worst case, which is what I tell a lot of parents is that they're going to become very limited, you know, in the way of like what they can do in life, like meaning that in school, you know, they'll, some kids will excel at certain subjects because they love it. They love to learn about outer space, love to learn about nature and science. However, when you get them to kind of read The Kill a Mockingbird or some sort of other books or history, uh, they're just completely, you know, I'm not interested because I don't like to read. So mm -hmm. meaning that, you know, they're not going to be able to have the opportunity to try different things and explore and real and, and wear different hats per se and realize that maybe... I do like this. I just, I'm, I don't like it because I just don't like to read. So I've never been properly introduced to it versus I like science because that's what my parents do or that's what my friend likes. So they kind of got introduced to something in a different manner and they've never really had the opportunity to kind of explore or open all possible doors in their future. So, and sometimes it works out and sometimes you're quite happy, but sometimes you know, you end up in a position or a profession that you're just like, it's okay, but you know, I wish I could have been doing something else. Right. I mean, as adults, when we reflect back, we're like, man, I really should have tried harder at this point. Like I think about myself with my high school math. I'm like, man, I really should have done better. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you've done well for yourself. But yeah. I, you know what, as an adult, I love it. I love teaching it, but high school was a different story. <laughs> Yeah, for me, I, I, I didn't realize actually, this is sort of my relationship to my passion is that I struggled with English. Um, and, and I didn't realize that I actually had a vision problem until actually fourth year optometry. Oh, so that's the part where it never really showed up until my last year at optometry school to get that. And I actually start to see double. Um, so I tried to actually resolve it through non vision therapy techniques and actually didn't work. And what I just I just worked around it. Um, and then it kind of made me realize why in high school or even in university, I excelled, I excelled, I excelled so well through like the most difficult courses, like organic chemistry, you know, mathematics, calculus, all the physics, oh, yeah, all no those thanks. other things that I thought, you know, it was so easy or for me, but it was very difficult for other people. But then also when you got me to do another course, such as English or history, it just it took a lot of energy out of me that I felt like I spent like 
50% of my time on just on those courses where the other courses I just spent five, 10%. So it, I, I realized then I was, you know, I very, I pretty much limited myself with regards to what I could have been in the future. But you now in hindsight, I'm, I'm really happy still about who I am and what I've done, but it's, uh, I'm starting to kind of understand, you know, I would say the restrictions or even my compensations of how hard I had to work and, and how it sometimes made me feel, you know, writing a test. And that's, that's, that's a hard thing to kind of bottle up or to kind of express to someone. And that's the part where I can really relate to kids in a way of, do you really feel like your second best? Do you really feel like you really know this? Are you, are you sure that you know this and do you deserve this? And those are things that when you're not, I would say performing to your maximum ability or you're kind of second guessing yourself and they're considered good guesses for the test. It kind of makes you feel that, you know, why is that? And why does my friend, and I remember in university, a friend of mine who hardly studied, you know, he's get 98%. He was one of those students that basically got the full scholarship. And then every time I'd ask him for help, you know, he'd be playing a video game. So <laughs> he goes, oh, I'm, I'm done studying. And then all of a sudden I'm like, you're done studying. I'm like, I got five more hours of studying. And then that's where, no, he just reads it once and he gets it. And that's where, you know, in my definition, I've seen patients like that. They actually have very efficient visual processes, like meaning that, you know, when a child has to reread, reread, and, or sometimes you turn the page and you're working with them and you're like, we just read that word. Yeah. Don't you see what that word was or don't you remember? And they're like, no. And you think like they're not paying attention. Maybe it's just their visual recall, their visual memory, or maybe it's their visual discrimination or their, their visual detail. You know, they just don't recognize it and they don't, they can't, you know, put one and one together and it's, it's not their fault. They're really trying, but they just can't, you know, it just, it looks like literally a foreign language to them all the time. Right. Which leads to my question. So, I mean, that's how I started owning a tutoring company was I went from being a kindergarten teacher and preschool teacher to having grade ones and grade twos really, really struggling with their reading and not being able to do exactly what you said, um, read the word the on page one. And we flip to page two, exact same lettering and they don't recognize the word the. So, is there something in early childhood settings? So even before those learning letter stages, so when we're doing our shapes and we're playing, are there strategies that can be used in an early childhood classroom for those zero to six-year-olds that we as educators can start doing to work on those visual skills? I would introduce play. Um, honestly, play is a lot of visual skills, um, playing in a sense of playing with your body. Um, like think about your physical education classes. Can you do hopscotch? Can you skip a rope? You know, can you play with jacks? Can you throw a ball? So that's where vision is at play. And that's where the kids are most engaged. Mm -hmm. So we really take it for granted that, you know, like skipping is, you know, your visual system kind of guides your body. Uh, sorry, uh, hopscotch. That's, that's sort of what I'm picturing is that when you're about to kind of make those jumps, first, you have to kind of calculate the distance. And then, you know, and sometimes you're jumping odd numbers if you're, if you're labeling the, the squares. So then you have to know where the odd numbers are and whether if it's a one square jump or a two square jump. So these are all calculations we take for granted, but these are also skills that kids are learning and they're also developing their brain because going back to an earlier question is that the eyeball isn't actually an extension of the brain. 
So in that way, the eyeball is not a separate organ. It's actually an extension. So the eyeball is actually a sensory uh, system for the brain to take in the information from the outside, understand it, and also tell you what to do with it, you know, such as like when a baby is born and they're learning to finally crawl, but before they crawl, they usually roll over. And then before they, and then, then after they roll over or at the same time, they're lifting up their heads. Mm -hmm. So as they lift up their heads, they're developing their posture. They're, they're developing their postural muscles, but they're also developing how their eyes move, you know? And then the whole point of this whole thing is that the baby is trying to look at what's around them, what is around their world and where's mom and dad, or where's my toy or where's that food. And once they are located, they're like, Oh my God, there it is. What do I do? How do I get there? <laughs> I've got these like, you know, funny looking things around me and I seem like I can kind of move them around and how do I move to it the fastest way possible and efficiently where I don't feel like it's I'm out of breath. So like playing games with your kids, in the sense of like, how do you do log rolls? How do you skip? How do you jump? Or how do you like, you know, like, like uh, move in different ways, like different animals, like you can kind of pretend yes. to become like a bear. So there's so many things that it, it all depends on the situation you can easily create for your child to kind of set them up for success for school. So the, you know, the number one tip I give parents is that the more immobile that your child is the more that you restrict them with movement and exploration the less likely they'll develop their visual sense because when you're born you're not really born with having the capacity of like your full visual skills you're right. kind of born with some uh, basic amount and you know over the next six to seven years typically you start to develop your visual skills through experience and if you really limit the person from their experience of the world their visual skills would be very limited. You know, for example, they did animal studies back when it was, you know, I would say okay or cool to kind of, you know, treat yeah. animals inhumanely, but now it's not allowed. But they used to kind of remove different parts of brains of cats or, or, or mice, um, or they would actually, there's this one experiment where they, I think they, they, they put a cat or they put an animal where in the room where it's all stripes, use either vertical stripes or horizontal stripes. Uh -huh. And then they would basically, you know, in their critical period of life, they would kind of just expose them to one type of stimulus. And then sure enough, as soon as they expose them to the real world, the ones that would only see vertical stripes, they would not acknowledge all the horizontal material around you, like tabletops or chairs. They would kind of bump into them because they'd, they'd be like, what is this? I've never seen this before. Oh, interesting. But you know, months after, you know, they would learn it again, but they realized soon afterwards that they had no idea what it was. Or an interesting type of uh, observation in India is that when they actually took kids and then the kids who had grown up with cataracts, so a cataracts is an opacity in the eye and basically they can't see. They can imagine all they can see is just basically shadows. That's how bad the cataracts were. Oh my goodness. And then what they did before they did cataract surgery was that they gave them different shapes, like a ball, a cube, a triangle, uh, and so on. And, you know, they would, you know, when they had their cataracts and they were feeling the item, they can actually identify the item properly. This mm -hmm. is my mug. This is the, this is the ball. This is the cube. But after surgery, when they actually gave them sharp vision yep. and then they presented the object without them touching it, actually they did not even know what the object was. 
Interesting. And then soon after, again, with experience and with time, you know, three months later, I believe, or six months later, they're like, you know, what is this object? And then basically they're using their, their, their sense of vision to be able to recall what the objects are using, you know, their eyes, you know, versus their hands. So, and that's the other sign of like, you know, well, if they're, if the kids are typically one to five, you know, they're always going to use their sense of touch and taste and smell to kind of explore. But mm -hmm. typically around past age six, I would say on average, uh, depending if it's a boy or girl, girls earlier than boys, is that uh, you, you will switch over to your visual sense of determination of what's around you, meaning that you'll start to use your eyes in order to explore rather than your hands. So typically the big red flag for me is like when you have a child that's very touchy-feely like extremely mm -hmm. then you have an idea that the visual system has not developed properly oh interesting so this might be a loaded question yeah. is there a point of no return where wherever that vision is developmentally is like so zero to five you could improve the vision but is there a point at someone's life where where their vision is at, that's the end of the line for them. Oh, excellent question. So this is the part that kind of got me. When I was in school, I learned that there was a critical period based on um, Nobel Prize laureate's work that up to age seven or maybe up to age 10, depending on which study you read, mm -hmm. that the brain would also just cement and it would just like, sorry, no more information in. That's it. You know, we've stopped growing. Oh. And that's what I was taught. And that's where when you have someone, for example, this is a conversation around lazy eye, is yes. that you can't fix people's lazy eyes after a certain age. But sure enough, in that course, we learned about a, um, it was a lady, her name was Dr. Susan Berry. So she was a neurobiologist professor. And she wrote an amazing book called Fixing My Gaze. And she did vision therapy in her 40s. Oh, and wow. that kind of blew me away in the sense that I was like, no way. You can tell me that someone in their 40s can actually do vision therapy and be successful and, and resolve their lazy eye. And all of a sudden, I've never heard of such a case ever. And but yet soon enough later, I'm like laughing. There are many people in their world that are actually <laughs> fixing their eyes after, you know, in their adult life now that I just never bothered to look for or never realized or never hung out with the right optometrist <laughs> right. and share these stories with me. So that's the part where she really blew the doors wide open. And obviously with her, with her science background, and she wrote a book citing all these references and even, you know, using her own experience that you can, you know, always, you know, I would say change your brain. And that's sort of Norman Deutsch's book, um, the brain that changes itself. There's so many different types of therapies in the world that we're just not completely aware of have how we interact and how we touch the brain. Right. So, but yeah, there's no, um, there's no sense of um, dead end. The only type of dead end is when the mind is closed. So meaning like when the parents' minds are closed or when the educators' minds are closed or when a child's mind is closed and that's where they feel like they're lost, they're trapped. And you know what, I can't get out of this box. And that's the only time that I've realized is that that's worth, I would say they're 99% like, like closed, but there's always that one, 
percent of you know glimmer of hope that if you can just expand it to one to five to ten that yes there is always that opportunity that you can make the change but you need to show them in their own ways to help them understand that they can make the changes that they are looking for oh 100 and i mean i am quite biased towards vision therapy because we met because i was tutoring a student that was struggling in reading was struggling in writing and her she had been diagnosed with um being dyslexic and mom truly to her heart of hearts, did not believe that diagnosis. And she found you. And within a year, I mean, this child went from being below reading level to above reading level, handwriting improved. And I just, I knew I had to meet you. And so, and we've since had common patients together, common students, just having that growth mindset and that willingness to put in the work. I mean, the improvement is incredible when they start working on their vision. So I guess one of my other questions for you is, and I'm going to put it like a disclosure before I say it just for my listeners, is a diagnosis of a vision problem does not necessarily replace other diagnoses. But my question to you is, what are some of the common misdiagnoses that you see in, in people that come to you. So they've been diagnosed with something, um, but really it was a cover for a vision problem. Oh, the most common one is ADD. So in the sense that, you know, they, and I, I tell parents, you know, straight up is that your child could have an attention issue. However, um, there's a higher percentage of patients diagnosed with ADD that they actually have a vision problem. And then once you start to resolve the vision problem, the, you know, the, the perception of ADD could be, you know, much, much less that the person may forget that they have ADD. Mm -hmm. um, I always joke that I feel like everyone has ADD these days and that's, you know, our attention can, you know, are easily distracted, but we're still somewhat functional, but, you know, people with ADD or, or you could say really attention issues really kind of describe things differently in their life. You know, experiences are kind of how to describe it as quite different and that's where they come across a, a slew of emotions. Um, another common diagnosis is dyslexia. Mm -hmm. So dyslexia is like, you know, to me, I tell people dyslexia is just means that they just have trouble reading. If you kind of look at what the definition is in the Oxford dictionary, it just means someone who has trouble reading, right? You know, and dyslexia can come in different forms. But, um, you know, you just want to make sure that you rule out any vision problems. That's, that's really what I always tell parents. And that's where, you know, sometimes, you know, parents do take or, or educators do send their, their students or their child to an optometrist to kind of properly get their vision tested, but they may not realize that the optometrist is not aware of vision therapy. Um, and the main reason, as I, I mentioned before, is that, uh, that my school uh, where I went to, there's only one Canadian English speaking school uh, for optometry. It's not, it was not commonly taught. So the word vision therapy was not even, you know, was not even mentioned in my you know, university days at, at, you know, when I was going through school. Um, so most optometrists are not aware of it. I think more recently, more and more are starting to kind of become aware of what vision therapy is, is just because there's a handful of us that's kind of really, um, I would say blossomed recently in the past mm -hmm. maybe five to 10 years and kind of really embraced this. So part of my whole platform is also educating students and other practitioners and sharing information. So you know, we can help more people like, you know, if one in four kids have a vision problem, just imagine the population of Mississauga, that's a lot of kids or a lot of people with vision problems that I can't handle on my own. You know, there's, no. 
Yeah, and, and you really need the whole army to kind of help you to help people be aware of it and maybe be accepting of it in the sense that most of the times, most parents are like, I've never heard of this. How come you're the only one that's doing this? And I say, well, I'm not the only one. It's a global thing, you know, mean, meaning people across the world are doing vision therapy. Yep. Uh, vision therapy has been around in the U.S. That's where most of my training has been for 100 years. Oh, wow. Uh, there are several optometry schools in uh, the U.S. that have a residency. Uh, Waterloo, by the way, actually has just their first um, residency program in vision therapy. Oh, I wonderful. Think it's been up and running for the maybe past two or three years. So it's, it's really new. So it kind of gives you an idea that Canada is starting to acknowledge it. Uh, but in the U.S., there are several locations all throughout the country where there are, you know, residency sites where students can be properly educated and, you know, and sort of be, be accelerated with their learning to help, you know, I would say patients as soon as they come out into practice. Yeah. So it's more commonly practiced in the U.S. Uh, than in Canada. So for the Canadian ECEs or Canadian educators, it's something that you're still learning. Yep. Um, and it's something that you'll come across hopefully more and more for the in the next 10 to 20 years. Well, and that's why I wanted to have you on this podcast too, because I know you and I met, but most early childhood educators that I've talked to, I mean, they know what visual spatial is. They know the importance of that visual spatial awareness um, and being able to, you know, use your eyes in a full capacity, but not understanding the difference between eyesight and vision and the importance of that vision and that there is a solution basically. Yes. Yeah. The other key thing that you mentioned is that when they actually have a diagnosis of a, a visual memory, visual spatial, or anything, you know, that's a psychologist has diagnosed, read through it. Mm -hmm. And then you'll start to realize that they use the word vision quite a bit. And then those are also key facts that you're like, okay, well, they've identified there's definitely something wrong, you know, but in general, like the key thing is, what are you going to do about it? What, you know, how do you compensate, how do you not compensate? Sorry, how do you kind of remediate the issue? And that's the part where I don't, I disagree with kind of providing like um, accommodations because accommodations can only last so long, but once you're out of school, yes. accommodations are not given to you in real life. You know, and that's the part where your your boss or your coworkers may not be as understanding as give me an extra two days to finish yeah. it. They're like, no, no, the deadline's today. You need to do this today. So, yeah. and you have to do it under pressure. And that's where you kind of see all our kids buckle is because when there's a lot of pressure, that's where if the skill that they're trying to learn hasn't been solidified, right? that's where it breaks down. And that's where you commonly see as a tutor that, you know what, they work well with you one-on-one, -on -one, but as soon as they kind of get presented with the time-sensitive test, that's yes. where you feel like, wow, you kind of got flushed away and that's where you just need a little bit more work or maybe there's other things that's preventing them from learning. And that's sort of when, you know, one of the tests that I kind of commonly test for, which I think is extremely important is what's called your visual information processing or the way you perceive things. Mm -hmm. So like, even when we talk about memory, we kind of use it loosely is that, you know, when you're, when we're kind of recalling, you know, mutual um, clients that we both had, yeah. you know, right away, I'm kind of looking up and I'm imagining who the person is. And I'm like, Oh, I remember that little curly hair girl. Oh, I remember that boy where now he's like a big man now. But yeah. you know, when I first met him, he was that, that nice little boy with the glasses and, and so on, you're always picturing certain things. And or even when we read stories, or when we kind of recall books, you commonly like, you know, Harry Potter is the most, you know, commonly, you know, read book is that 
you're imagining, you know, Harry Potter, you're imagining yes. Hogsworth and you're imagining the castle, you're imagining all these things. And that's sort of like when they talk about that story, you're like, oh, I remember that book one. And that's where this, this and this happens. And it's always about playing a movie in your head, but it's always visual. Right. It's always a visual memory that you're recalling or even mathematics. What does four represent? You know, how do you how do you know what four means? Like, what's that symbolism for you? Is it on the linear scale? Is it just four sticks? So there's so many different ways to kind of interpret that. But we take it for granted when we kind of use visual memory or we say visual detail, like some people can't really differentiate the differences between certain letters and then they may misread a word or uh, they may, you know, say the wrong thing or, you know, they may omit something because everything kind of looks jumbled for them. So there's, or, or sequential memory is like, how did the story go? Are you memorizing or are you understanding the plot line as it should mm -hmm. or, you know, or as a teacher or as a parent, when you say, how was school or how was your weekend? And all of a sudden you realize that they're just kind of firing in all directions or not even going the sequential manner. Yes. And that's their sequential memory is like what happened first and what happened last, or how does this, how do you spell this word? You know, it's, it's not always sequential memory. There's a whole bunch of different things that's related to spelling, mm -hmm. but there's, there's all these processes that's kind of intertwined. And how do we, prevent that because I mean that, that one to four like one in every four like I'm thinking of a preschool classroom that can have a max of 24 students that's six children in that room with vision problems yes yeah like that's huge yeah like and I mean what would benefit those six children would definitely benefit all 24 children so like, so we've talked gross motor, but in terms of say sequential ordering or that visual memory or um, the working memory, does story time help with that? Like, I'm wondering what we could be doing to almost help prevent those future issues. Um, story time. Like I really tell people kind of imagine like you were in Little House on the Prairie and imagine what you would do, you know, if you were that school teacher in that schoolhouse you know, and think about all the different games that the kids play. Like these are things that we're not doing as a society. Mm -hmm. And I think when we like say are too interactive with electronics, that's another. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> like electronics is very addictive and it's engaging and it kind of, it's very highly stimulating. It kind of gives you that dopamine hit yep. that you're looking for, but you don't really want something to kind of like, you don't want your environment to kind of entice you. You want something within to kind of, you know, lead you to what you want to do. Mm -hmm. But physical play, I always stress is really important. I think kids these days are not doing it, whether we're, you know, limiting the amount of play, you know, there's not enough playgrounds. Uh, we're trying to keep our kids indoors because they want to play their video games. They want to kind of watch TV. They're not outside exploring. You know, I remember as a child going through the forest, jumping up on logs and making make believe and and kind of you know, diving through, you know, bushes and, you know, you get scratched once, but then they won't scratch you again mm -hmm. type of thing. Yep. So it's all those like little bumps and bruises that you have to kind of pick up through childhood that eventually kind of builds a better robust brain. Um, so reading is really beneficial, obviously reading with your child, uh, playing games, like playing board games, like anything board games, like mm -hmm. from, you know, sorry, if you remember that, that yes. game, all it is, is just like, you're moving this peg around, but it's a concept of math. What's right. five spaces and which direction do you want to go? 
I don't know if it's in different directions, but you know, that's what we call laterality and directionality is like when kids mix up B's and D's. And again, B's and D's are commonly mixed up before age of six. Right. But you can kind of get a sense from a uh, educator standpoint is like, okay, this one is like, you know, out of the park, they're just mixing up everything yeah. versus this one's a little bit and maybe they'll come around, but that's related to your vision. So board games really help, you know, solidify that concept or monopoly was one of the games we used to play, but it's always about money. It's right. like, okay, you know, $22 rent, I give you $30 how much change do I want? And my daughter was cute. You know, she's kind of saying, how about that? I just give you five bucks. And then, <laughs> and then she kind of rounds and she's like, you know, she didn't want to do the math. She was like, five bucks is close enough. But you're like, no, no, no. As a parent, you're like, no. Okay, what's 30 minus 22 type of thing. So you're right. trying to get them to do math in your head through right. games. So those well, are and when it's I've... fun, it sticks, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, I'm a like I'm a certified wonder-based teacher, like play is the foundation of all learning, like oh. having that sense of wonder and hands-on learning is the key to learning. And also iPads and TVs are flat, right? They're not yes. three-dimensional. So you're not doing anything for your vision. Yes. No, hundred percent. That wonder, what you said is really key because once you have wonder and then you have the sense of accomplishment or satisfaction that you've solved the issue yep then it gives you confidence to pursue right you know it's sort of the building block says oh i built this little robot maybe i could build something else and i could build something bigger and better and and you just kind of go from there you know from that lemonade stand to kind of yes. owning like your big whatever whatever company you can imagine so yeah that's owning always, minute made <laughs> that's right <laughs> Well, this has been beyond informative. I mean, like I said, I am very biased towards vision therapy and I believe that it is that next level of just healthy learning and healthy development. And I certainly want to see more of it being acknowledged in early childhood to have more preventative measures because I see it so much as a tutor um, and these kids come to me in grade one, grade two, and we can still work with them. Um, and certainly in high school, but come grade nine, when those issues are not dealt with, I mean, the workload is so much that it's so hard to correct that. And I mean, we've both worked with high school patients and seen the improvement, but that was not without the student putting in a ton of additional work. Yes, I, I completely agree. Um, I really appreciate you kind of reaching out and I really, you know, I appreciate you kind of you know, educating your own peers and your own community about this, just because I'm pretty sure it goes beyond vision therapy. Um, if your community is looking for information, yes, uh, you can pass on my information. You know, our office is happy to share and happy to educate people who want to learn. Uh, but also you can ask um, your, your community to kind of Google Vision Therapy Canada. Uh, there is a nationwide um, um, association, you can say, it's called Vision, yeah, vision Therapy. Yeah, VTC. Sorry, we've rebranded. We we we've rebranded our name. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. Vision therapy. If they Google Vision Therapy Canada, you should hit a website where um, it can take you to a number of practitioners uh, within different communities through Canada, where there is an optometrist that specializes in vision therapy. Um, the only thing that I would always uh, warn, um, you know, educators is just make sure that if you are you know, seeking someone that does vision therapy, making sure that they do in-office vision therapy. In-office vision therapy means that 
they're working with a therapist, uh, you know, typically one-on-one or a group setting where uh, they're doing the exercises together because there was a, actually a, a landmark study where they actually compared different vision therapy platforms. Mm-hmm. So they actually, it's called a CITT study where they compared um, in-office vision therapy compared to placebo, compared to uh, a computerized vision therapy program. And they actually compared it to an in-office, you know, I call it like a, a joke program where they were just doing random things, but you know, people did not know what to expect. Right. Um, and in-office vision therapy proved to be statistically significant for improvements, okay. meaning that the other types of therapy, which is, you know, sometimes what people may come across is computerized vision therapy that alone does not help. And it's no. considered, you know, equivalent to placebo. So that's okay. the part where, you know, I want to make sure that it does work. Uh, people just need to make sure that they seek out the right, you know, practice to kind of make sure it's done properly and then right. they should see the results. Okay, amazing. Well, and what I will do is with when our podcast launches, I will also put up our podcast notes and I will have your information and I will also make sure to put Vision Therapy Canada right on the website so people can check it out. Thank you. Thank you. That is awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much.